Hi, this is Emlyn from New Music Listening Club. Dan and I recorded this episode with our guest Megan Enan on May 23rd, before the recent Black Lives Matter protests. We delayed the release while focusing on these events around the country, but we want to share it now for a discussion of some works that expand our idea of contemporary music through a variety of different voices and perspectives. We are committed to broadening and deepening our listening practice moving forward, especially to musicians who identify as Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and people of color. And we encourage you to do the same by listening to, amplifying, and purchasing music by artists of color. We look forward to sharing more listening in the future. Hello, and welcome to New Music Listening Club, a podcast dedicated to consuming, sharing, and enjoying new music. In this sixth episode, we are sharing a friendly book club-style discussion of music by Emma O'Halloran, Meredith Monk, and Natalie Joachim. To find the music we are talking about today, check out links in the description for this podcast episode or look for Listening List 6 on our website, newmusiclisteningclub.com. First, I'd like to introduce our panel for this episode. I'm your host, Emlyn Johnson. I'm a flutist who's active in performing, commissioning, and presenting new music. And I am joined today, of course, by Dan Ketter. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm a cellist, music theory nerd, and contemporary music enthusiast. I teach in higher head and do commissioning and performing projects with Emlyn. We are so happy to be chatting today with our guest, new music mezzo-soprano Megan Enan, who also does writing and consulting and was very encouraging to us starting this podcast. We are so excited to chat with you today, Megan. Thanks for coming. I am so excited to be here. Thank you both. Emlyn, Dan, this is just such a pleasure. Well, thanks, Megan. We are really happy. I'm especially happy, I'll just say for our listeners, because Megan and I met years ago, I think at the Fresh Ink Festival, Fifth House, yes? Yes. Yeah, and got to play together a little bit and then have reconnected over the years several times, seeing each other maybe at the Bang on a Can Festival one year and big years and just in all different ways. And as Dan mentioned, Megan has been so encouraging to us and as we know to so many in the new music community. So thank you for all you do. Oh my goodness. Thank you. (laughs) That's very (laughs) sweet of you. (laughs) We don't mean to embarrass you, but we're just big fans. (laughs) Well, I'm big fans of both of you. So this this is great. I'm I'm really excited about getting together today to just talk about music and talk about music that we love. So that's such an yes. exciting part. I think, Emlyn, you mentioned us getting together at Fresh Ink Festival. And one of the things that I think is so important about festivals mm-hmm. is that moment to get together with people that you haven't met before and talk about something that you're really passionate about, which is new music or new ideas in music. And I think both you and I have really valued that in our festival experiences and coming into contact with music that we've never heard before and getting to study it really deeply and perform it. And then Mm -hmm. also talk about that with people who are just as ready to nerd out as we are. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Very true. Well, speaking of all this music that we love, just to give everybody out there a little bit of background about how the podcast works, for each episode, each of the panelists picks a piece that they would like to listen to and talk about. We have all chosen a recording released in the last five years or so that we either hadn't heard before or are just dying to listen to again and talk about with friends. If you have any music you would like us to listen to, either find us on Facebook at New Music Listening Club 
or on Twitter at Listening New, or email us your suggestions at newmusiclisteningclub at gmail.com. Anything we listen to needs to be available to stream online so we can listen, and anyone else in the audience who would like to participate can find the tracks we're talking about. The tracks we are listening to today are posted as links on our Facebook and Twitter and included in the podcast episode description. So let's get started. I think we'll start with you today, Dan. What piece did you bring for us? All right. Well, when we were talking with Megan about doing this episode, she suggested listening to some music by Emma O'Halloran. And Emma and I were listening to several different pieces by Emma O'Halloran. And my eyes lit up as bright stars listening to this (laughs) recent piece that she wrote called Constellations. It was written in 2018. This was performed by Madeline Healy and the Refugee Orchestra Project, conducted by Lydia Yankovskaya on June 12th in 2018. When I was listening to this piece, I was very excited by the different sounds that I was hearing. And I loved reading more about Emma talking about her piece. So I want to read just a little bit of the program note that she had that I think will be a great place for us to jump off from. She says, as a largely self-taught female composer... I spent a great deal of time reflecting on my place and identity in relation to a long tradition of music produced mostly by white male composers. I wrote the lyrics for Constellations about this experience, and I also draw inspiration from a National Geographic article focusing on the discovery that handprints in ancient cave art most often belong to women. This piece is about finding your voice and making the art that you want to make. I just, I really appreciate that perspective and especially in composition of new music, trying to really find your voice and Mm. to communicate the things that are most important to you. And I was just excited about the fresh sounds in this piece, the fun performance Mm -hmm. and the links that we have here. And I would love to know what you guys think about it. Dan, I really love what you just said about finding your voice. And I think that all of the tracks that we're listening to today in this club get together um, <laughs> is, uh, is really actually about finding your voice. You know, it's really about Agreed. performers, composers, and listeners kind of finding their way into a truest expression of one's voice. And mm-hmm. I love these tracks because of the reinforcement from those composers, performers for the audience to say, it's okay to find your own voice. Like, look at me being up here doing it. Look at me finding my voice now where that's enabling you to find your own voice. I think there's a lot of that in the tracks that we're listening to today. And I I just love them for that. I totally agree, Megan. I think definitely in my own notes, I've been writing about that. I think the idea of finding one's voice, there's definitely a theme throughout the tracks that we have today of women's strength. Yeah. And all this music is very hopeful and very individual and expressive. And I think you're totally right that it invites others to also think about their own individuality and what they can contribute that's unique and that's true to themselves. So I agree. I love all this music and I will probably say that many times today and sound like a total goober. So (laughs) bear with me. We're all here for that, right? (laughs) I also thought, Dan, with the program note that you mentioned, this idea of these handprints that were inspiring to the composer in this piece, something that I just, that struck me about that was the idea that those are kind of seen, but not heard, Mm. because obviously that's coming from the past. And of course, we can interpret that however we want and think about that history in lots of different ways. But I kept thinking here in this piece, the idea of having, you know, a woman being seen and heard and how important that is and kind of all that same idea of finding one's voice. I love this piece. It had a very 
anthemic quality. <laughs> yes, felt, absolutely. Like, a really rallying cry in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think you pick up on a great point with the driving nature and the electronics and where we start to get some of maybe that pop influence in mm-hmm. this track is really allowing us to have some of that anthemic quality. And I think <laughs> I think it like it gives us, you know, that drive. You hear it at the beginning and I felt like the voice electronic track was very present to me at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then you start to let it filter into the rest of the sounds. And then the voice on top of that was very compelling to me. I thought, oh, wow, that's so, so interesting, because the electronic sounds were super present to me. And then they start to become the bedrock of sound. And then Mm. you start to pick up on the moments of sound that kind of pop out instead of the continuous sound. Hmm. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. You're talking about electronic sounds and the influence of electronic music. Mm-hmm. I feel like that that was a deliberate generic choice for O'Halloran. In some interviews that I've read and in a little bit that she says about the piece, she says that, and this piece itself is actually a little bit about coming into composition as an outsider. Mm-hmm. She talks about being in school And the music that she listened to growing up was a lot of pop music, things that we wouldn't normally associate with Pinky's raised up new music, contemporary (laughs) music. All our tea parties, you know. (laughs) And that uh, she said she, in this uh, uh, interview with Angelica Negron that we can put on the website, she says that she didn't really have a strong background in music before going to music school and that what was really inspiring for her was like learning how to use a digital audio workstation and like put together mm-hmm. music on the computer. And that's something that in our current music education system, both like in primary school and in secondary and in college, is something that's really underemphasized. And mm-hmm. I think that especially given how prevalent it is in the music creation landscape. And I think that our collegiate academic sphere is only just beginning to kind of come to terms with realizing how important that is for mm-hmm. actual folk music, the, the, the music that people are listening to, the music that is like a part of our lives. Yeah. So I think that it's really interesting that she would say that this piece is like coming into music as an outsider having a lot of training then afterward as a composer. And then for this anthem that she's choosing to present for this composition for the Hildegard competition, is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. She would choose this particular medium and this genre to give her message of girl power. Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. This is who I am. Yeah, this is who I am. Exactly. And it really reminded me of, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a little bit of a music theory nerd, but I've been doing a lot of self-reflection since a very powerful event that happened at the Society for Music Theory's 42nd meeting just this last year. There was a really intense series of talks at the plenary session. Yeah. And for anybody that's interested in that, I really highly recommend that you look at some of those talks. But one of them was titled Getting to Count by Eli Hisama. And it was trying to talk about like what counts as music theory or what counts as, in this sense, art composition. And I think that this manifesto or this like anthem is a really compelling case for not looking at something like electronic music or popular music as something that's not as important or not as sophisticated as serial composition or Mm -hmm. some other things that have sort of been sitting in the middle of academic or like new music writing for a long time. And I just really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Definitely. Well, and Dan, I want to go back for just a second and pick up something you said about DAWs, like DAWs. I was having this really interesting conversation recently about the current situation that we're in with the COVID-19 pandemic Mm -hmm. and a conversation that was kind of traversing, what do you think that people will do during this time to stay connected to music? And we talked a little bit about like the Spanish flu and talked about the rise of making of home music, making music in your home Mm -hmm. and pianos Mm -hmm. and things like that. And I posited in this conversation that I think that DAWs are kind of the pianos of that time period for us right now. It's like oh, absolutely a way that people can start scratching that musical itch to create something with sounds. And they have it right there on their computers and they can just start playing around. There's a lot more agency and access when it comes to making music that way that really opens up our world in so many ways. And I think it's really important for us to welcome that music that's Mm -hmm. being made no matter where it's coming from, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we have platforms like this, like what you said with the conference and getting to count is anytime you get to have a chance to put something forward and say, well, of course that belongs, this recording belongs on this as much as this recording, because we're in charge of that. Anytime you get to say, you get to put something forward. So I think that's also why something like, you know, New Music Listening Club is so important because... Thanks, Megan. Yeah, (laughs) it really is because you are joining together and other people get to listen in and we get to remind people that being influenced by wildly different genres is all valid and important and moves us forward in music. Definitely. Well said. I love that idea of the piano being the new piano as the digital audio workstation. (laughs) There's something... I'm going to think about that for a long time. I think that's a really good one. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) When I was listening to this piece, thinking about it, O'Halloran talks about her influences as um, when she was younger and listening to a lot of Aphex Twin or Bjork. I think that this track has a lot of Bjork vibes. I am such a Bjork fan. I just am so inspired listening to that music. But I think that there are ways that we can look at how electronic dance music is constructed that might give interesting insights to what she's actually doing in this piece. And I have recently read a dissertation by Asaf Perez that talks about electronic dance music and different kinds of timbral techniques or Mm -hmm. different kinds of formal techniques that you can use in electronic dance music. He has a very interesting website called Top 40 Theory that I admire for having like a crystal clear way to think about theoretical concepts in popular music and especially in like electronic music. But a idea of his that I really liked using when I was thinking about this piece was the idea of like a setup, a buildup and a peak. Yeah. Instead of like an exposition and development and recapitulation. (laughs) If you're thinking about the different pieces of music and like something is set up, different kinds of techniques that can be used for a buildup and how the buildups lead to and set up peaks Mm -hmm. and like what the content is of the peak. It helps us focus on different aspects of the composition and maybe get into the mind of the composer in a different way. Hmm. In this particular one, I was really interested. There are two really big buildups. One of them is uh, there are these dulcimer delay tracks. Oh, I love the dulcimer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So there's the the dulcimer and that has the delay and there's a sign base that while the text is saying growing up is losing your illusions, which just feels like something out of, it's like a wonderful transformation of some buildups that I remember listening to in the 90s and like Mm -hmm. roller skating rink. Yep. (laughs) And then that leads to this like big instrumental breakdown peak. 
Mm-hmm. They're sort of just like just kind of highlighting her compositional style and like what she thinks is is interesting. This like instrumental peak is really just a fun part of the story that shows instrumental writing technique and shows uh, interest in this kind of maybe tradition of using string instruments. Is that the I, I don't part know. that sounds kind of like a Bach jam? It, it sounds, yeah. yeah, to me it sounds like a Brandenburg jam or yeah. like the Bach okay. double violin concerto right. or something. Yeah, that's kind of what I was hearing. <laughs> oh my God, I am a fangirl hardcore when it comes to like a Brandenburg jam. Like, if you, like I did not realize that that was part of my like musical needs in life. And then like, but if you've got one in a piece, I am like suddenly there. Send I'm it your way. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I love that. That's so good. That's good. The other one that I really liked, the other peak, um, there's like another big buildup while the singer sings, all the pieces were pulled apart. They don't fit like they should. Mm-hmm. That part to me kind of sounded like an explicit reference to traditional music study and pedagogy, which is interesting. And then there's this, this giant buildup and a drop where everything goes away for like a bar. It's like a grand pause, but it creates this great expectation that we're going to get another peak. Mm-hmm. But instead of like a big peak where you like throw in a bass and like have some <laughs> sort of really big swirling thing happening, that's actually the title line for the track, Constellations, happens at that point. And it's like just the singer singing with very minimal accompaniment, mm-hmm. feels something that would be like a chorus. It's really tightly knit. I just thought it was really interesting that it would be very lightly orchestrated and maybe makes it more personal and helps mm. us to tighten our focus on the actual message rather than giving this like feel-good party vibe. Yeah. It was just very thoughtful, the way that some of these techniques were used. And I really thought it really, yeah, yeah, it really helped to enhance the message in a very effective way. I really like how Emma plays with kind of what I think of as scope in this piece. And I thought that it was particularly on point with like constellations, thinking about zooming in and zooming out and kind of this, Mm. you know, to music term it, but like augmentation, diminution kind of qualities in this piece where you're Mm -hmm. kind of like stretching, but then coming back. I think that that is really compelling in this piece. And there's a great score follower video for this piece. So if Mm -hmm. anybody's interested in that, please check it out. And I think Inti does the score follower video and there's another element to it, kind of like this beautiful next level of watching the score where when you do that next peak and it kind of goes from this minimal spot to growing again, where the score follower video starts with like one measure, then kind of like branches out because you're really only looking at like only the things that are involved at that point. Right. And I thought it was mm-hmm. a beautiful visual connection in a video like that to see in the score and then see it in the video and also hear what's happening. thought that was a beautifully done way of just visually explaining kind of what's happening there. That's really an interesting point. You know, I didn't exactly connect that when I was watching that, but that makes a lot of sense now in retrospect, having watched it many times. (laughs) And that, I mean, not to go too far on a detour, but what an interesting use of multimedia right? Yeah. To yeah, like exactly. show, we're not just showing the score. We're showing you kind of how we're interpreting the score. That's very yeah. interesting. Hmm. Something to think about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
I was just going to say, Dan, you, I know, had been inspired by some of this from your talks with Alyssa Barna. So I was wondering if we should give her a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. Alyssa Barner is a dear friend and colleague who's now a assistant professor up at University of Minnesota. She's a popular music analysis expert. And I'm really encouraged to see in the music theory field that there's a lot of serious thought and insight that's going into looking at some of these different techniques and getting meaning out of popular music and treating it seriously as part of our musical landscape. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. kind of what O'Halloran is also doing with this piece is really using this genre in a very meaningful way and telling her story, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't think that I want to make it seem like this is this incredibly pop infused like work sure. because it's like, it is like straight up new music through and through, right? This is definitely <laughs> also true. Um, like, and so I think there's a there's an, a balance of us talking about it in this way to say yes, it's got these pop influences, it's got these cool things that are going on, and also it's got all of these new music influences that are happening, mm-hmm. and. And it totally lives in that space, you know, and that's very cool. It is very cool. And another example of just blurring the lines between genres. Yeah. I mean, what you mentioned about the digital audio workstations being, you know, so relevant to not only this COVID-19 time, but to our modern times. Mm-hmm. There are so many people now who are blurring these lines or thinking about blurring them in different ways. I guess I'm just really curious to see in the next even like 20 years, what our new music landscape really looks like. Yeah, Because obviously trends kind of come and go and develop. And I don't know, I think that's it's just really interesting to see so much crossover is not even really good word for it. But that's the word that's coming to mind <laughs> at the moment. Dan, I wanted to just reinforce something you said about that moment when the word constellations comes in. That moment really struck me when I was expecting some kind of like loud splash with bass. And then suddenly it was just so much more open and transparent. And I think that did make it more personal. And throughout the whole piece, I think the text is pretty clear in the mix of this performance. But especially there, it's just a really beautiful kind of vulnerable moment that Mm -hmm. was unexpected really at that time. Yeah, I love that you're using that word expectation to talk about that because it reinforces how much of that effect is really O'Halloran creating the effect. I mean, she's Mm -hmm. like doing long-term planning to lead up to this moment that we're going to say the title of the piece and say the real message of the piece. And we're going to make you expect this one kind of music and this like maybe this kind of party vibe would be what you would expect in the EDM genre normally. But instead, it's sort of like pulling out the rug from under you and giving you just a, a whole heaping helping of the message. Like, this is really what I'm trying to say. This is the really important point that I'm trying to make. And I'm just really impressed by how effective that was. I'm also impressed with the text itself that Emma wrote along with the music, that it is personal and it's also uplifting. And Megan, you may be able to speak to this more than me. I'm not a vocalist, but it's not as common for a composer to write their own words, right? As it is to set other words. What do you think about that? Yes and no. I think that it comes from a place of whether or not composer think that that's part of that compositional side mm. for them, right? If that mm-hmm. if they're both into composing the sound and the text for something. But I think people also go back and forth. You know, sometimes 
they'll have works where they do write the text or they really want to use somebody else's text, you know, and I think that that's definitely changing or very personal, depending on who the composer is and how comfortable they feel with the text element of what they do. Mm -hmm. And in addition to this, I thought that what you were mentioning about Emma writing the text, but then also the, I, I would call it subtle, but maybe other people heard it more overt, would be the the Irish vocal line quality to all of the singing and like the way that Madeline it. I loved that kind of juxtaposition between Irish singing and and the kind of like party vibe. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. And I thought, I think that the juxtaposition creates a beautiful loneliness. And mm. I think that that's inherent in this piece and maybe speaks to Emma's feelings on why this was important for her to put forward for Hildegard competition and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. We could ask her. Um, like, yeah, but yeah. that's definitely a personal takeaway that I found in listening to the vocal quality, the vocal timbre, how the vocal line is written, and hearing that in the context of the rest of the piece. And I just found it, I, I am just so haunted by it at certain times and then deeply lulled by it at other times. And I loved it. I'll listen to it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's really not similar, but this reminded me of an album I listened to several years ago that was a Sarah Kirkland Snyder recording. It was Penelope performed oh, by okay. Ensemble Signal and Shira Warden. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's something about the vocal quality or the female perspective or just something about the music, but I was really reminded of that album um, and that piece while listening to this. When I went back and actually listened to it thinking, oh, there's maybe a similarity. It, the music is very different. There's something about it. Yeah. You, know, yeah. you heard it in the same place, which is really interesting. I think when we think about music creators and music listeners and and we're all in it together right well all of us as creators Mm -hmm. are also music listeners but where the piece strikes you as a listener and we create these our own little venn diagrams of pieces that kind of exist in the same place and while penelope doesn't sound anything necessarily like constellations but there's qualities of it that as listeners we're like that fits in the same place for me. I love listening to people talk about those Venn diagrams for themselves mm-hmm. as listeners. Like, where do certain pieces fit for you in relation to others? What do they mean? You know, those, right. those little connections are such juicy little stories. I love it. <laughs> That's true also. <laughs> uh, I think I was, I had a real sense of the kind of mezzo pop diva in the vocals <laughs> of this music. And I think I was thinking of other pieces of contemporary music or pop music, you know, that give that underlying quality. But I'm really interested to hear the connection you made also about Irish singing, because mm-hmm. that's not something that's so familiar to me, but would be a really interesting additional personal connection here. I appreciate you bringing For that up. Sure. Yeah. And I think if you if you go back to it, I wish that I were more versed in all of the qualities that make it have that touch of the folk vocalism there. Mm-hmm. But I think that you'll hear it in the timbre, in the way that the vibrato is used in certain ways, also sure. in like the rhythmic quality of the vocal line, you'll hear that come through. And I thought that that was, yeah, it was just such a nice little connection point for me. Yeah. Well, Dan, do you, is there anything we missed that you want to bring up about this music or Megan for that matter? No, I was just enjoying hearing you all talk about it also. (laughs) I've been thinking about it in this one particular way. 
and really just appreciate your perspectives on it. Really loved listening to this piece over and over. And I'm definitely looking forward to getting to know more of O'Halloran's music. Yeah. I think she has a lot of interesting and beautiful music to offer, for sure. Well, Megan, thank you for suggesting a dive into her music also. Thank you so much. Of course. It's been really fun. We also talked about, they just, with our friend Adam Grow, the percussionist, they just released a video of a new piece that I think is also stunning. So I highly recommend if people enjoy constellations in their listening adventures to also go listen to that collaboration between Emma O'Halloran and Adam Grow. Good recommendation. Yeah, we'll throw a link up on our list also. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks, Dan. Thank you. (laughs) I guess we should move on to our second selection for the day, which I will be sharing. Again, this is kind of a collaborative effort for our next track. And the piece that I'm bringing today is Tokyo Cha-Cha by Meredith Monk and her vocal ensemble and Bang on a Can All-Stars. This is coming from a really recent album release in March 2020, just as everything was going into lockdown. So lucky for us, we had this amazing album to listen to at home. Meredith Monk has inspired me ever since I have known of her. (laughs) She is an extremely inspiring figure. Megan, I think you and I might have seen her live the same year at Big Ears. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, indeed. We saw her last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you seen her live before? No, that was my first experience seeing her live. And I also got to meet her last year. Well, and that's I amazing. Was, and I was like, I was like, okay, Megan, keep it together. Look, look. <laughs> like, don't, don't melt. <laughs> like, um, and it was, but I have long admired her, like you said, Emlyn, as just obviously a composer vocalist who deeply follows her own guiding light on who she is oh, yes. as, as a as a music maker. And it was so wonderful to hear hear her perform. And I think in, in our kind of pre-talks before we got together for this, I wanted to say that her piece, I Am a Happy Woman, that oh, is yeah. part of Cellular Songs that she performed at Big Ears when we were both there. I was just blown away, like knocked out of my seat at how I needed to hear that last year. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. the way she performed it with such joyful, centered, grounded conviction. And I was like, who Lord, like, thank you so much for letting (laughs) me be in this spot right now. And, and so I couldn't find a recording of that online to share in this situation, because I think cellular songs is still kind of like in production, probably. Mm -hmm. And so this one also allowed me to kind of connect with that joyful, centered kind of feeling that I get from Meredith Monk and the music that she's making right now. You know, I think that Mm -hmm. she's been that way for a long time, but I think as she continues to deepen in her artistic practice, that, that quality comes through more and more and more and is just such a permission slip. I think for all of us who want to get it right all the Mm -hmm. time to be, to be joyful and be centered and grounded in our own artistic pursuits, our own thoughts about music and art and performance. And I, I just love her for that. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, I could talk about that all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had this funny thought while I was listening 
to this whole album. The album that this Tokyo Cha Cha is on is on Memory Game. I guess I should mention that. And the thought I had while listening to this was if Meredith Monk is a genre, that's my genre. Yes. <laughs> that's what I love. <laughs> I'll listen to that anytime. And I also just want to give a nod to since we've mentioned Big Ears Festival a few times now, you know, unfortunately, like many things, Big Ears was canceled this year. But that has been a real joy for me to attend for several different iterations of it to just hear so many different things talking about crossing genres and blurring lines. They are an amazing expression of that, I think. Definitely. And also a nod, of course, to Bang on a Can All-Stars, who are a big part of this album, this memory game album with Meredith Monk and her vocal ensemble. All the tracks on this album, I believe, were originally written in the 80s. I think, but they have all been made into new arrangements that have increased and changed the instrumental portion. But something that's really interesting to me about Tokyo Cha-Cha and about many of the other works on this album, I'm curious how you all think about this too. Something that's interesting to me is that this music feels really timeless. If Mm. I hadn't, you know, looked up that these are pieces from 40 years ago, I would think they're being written today. There's a real timeless quality to them. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And Megan, I really liked what you were saying about watching them live. And I feel a little left out because I've never (laughs) gotten to see Meredith Monk live. When I was listening to it, it did sound very timeless when I was listening to the track for the first time. And as I was doing a little bit of background reading and research, I was looking for other performances. And I found this live performance of the Tokyo Cha-Cha at Joe's Pub from 2005 on YouTube. And as soon as I started watching this, they had a a line of people. Two people were playing these little keyboards. And then there were three vocalists that were singing and doing these beautiful little dances, that (laughs) these little stylized movements. And it created this amazing sort of relationship with the audience to do some of these little dance moves with this very understated music and these kind of slowly evolving vocal riffs. And the whole audience just seemed captivated. I mean, people were laughing. They were having a great time. And watching that live video that I just like a light went off, I said, okay, I totally get this. This is like really, really (laughs) fun. It completely changed my mode of listening for this track, the Tokyo Cha-Cha track to see the live performance. And I went back and I was trying to figure out, you know, when it was written. I think it was in like 1983 or in the early 80s. And I found another track on YouTube. This, it's like a 30 minute track that was done (laughs) on cable TV or something. I think it was on PBS. Oh, it was yeah. Oh, it was totally on PBS in Boston, <laughs> called uh, called Turtle Dreams, yes. and it's this like yeah. thirty minute out there sequence of dancing and singing over this like repeated sort of ostinato line, and I, I really strongly recommend interspersed with footage of a turtle. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> and anybody who's trying to understand what Meredith Monk is doing, I think I would just really highly recommend that they watch some videos. Yeah, and definitely. I was also just amazed seeing this footage from 1983 of Turtle Dreams and how similar it is to the shows that she's doing in 2005, like how consistent that is and how consistently fresh and challenging and fun it is. And I don't know, that just gave me so much to think about with maybe how influential she's been for so many people since, you know, 1983, as it's clear from all the amazing people that admire her and have worked with her. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, we're talking about being huge fans, but we know that you know, she is highly celebrated with all sorts of awards, major awards from around the globe. And and has, Dan, as you mentioned, been extremely influential. And I think what's interesting about her and her influence is that it has filtered to people in so many different ways, whether their music is anything like hers or not, <laughs> just with kind of that ethos. And as Megan, you talked about of that being strong in your voice and your identity, I think that has impacted so many people and empowered so many people, which is a pretty amazing legacy, really. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm kind of like getting emotional just thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> it really is, though, I think. Meredith Monk offers like a, a workshop. I think she does kind of like this mm-hmm. residency type thing. And we've had some friends that have done it. And and to hear about the work that they do in that workshop and the uncovering of your own artistic process in your own voice and the way that she leads people through that is also one of her, I think one of her greatest gifts to our field, which mm-hmm. is you know, the music that she makes. Yes. The performances that she gives. Yes. And then also the way that she mentors people in their artistic practice, 100%. And I think that that's very important to me. And also, I think aligns with my goals about just being involved in your community that way. It's so much about, like I said, the music we're making. Yes, of course, the music that we're writing, the music that we're performing, and then also how we are with other people, Mm -hmm. and how we are in the process of making music together. And I really admire her for that quality. Yeah. So wonderful. Well, I want to get into a few of the kind of nuts and bolts, I guess, of this music. Something that always strikes me about Meredith Monk's music is her use of text. Text is not always the right word. Her use Mm -hmm. of phonemes or syllables Mm -hmm. or different kind of units of words. Mm -hmm. And first, when I was listening to Tokyo Cha Cha, since this specific piece was new to me, you know, I first was listening to it and trying to make kind of my own narrative out of it, as we do with any text we're hearing. Mm -hmm. But just the other day on like a Facebook live interview with Meredith Monk that I happened to catch 10 minutes of (laughs) (laughs) just totally randomly, I heard her say that she has never been as interested in traditional narrative and storytelling as she is in the idea of a mosaic because she thinks that's how our brains really process things, not necessarily in this straight line from point A to point B, but with these different ideas, you know, that we can put together in a more mosaic fashion. And mm-hmm. I thought that was certainly relevant to this music, this particular piece, and a lot of her music, in that there is text happening, there are repeated units of text that are happening, but they are only one kind of architectural element Mm -hmm. along with these different units of music, sometimes individual syllables in the voice, sometimes full words. But there's something about it that actually with repeated listening, I found there's a transparency to this work. They're like these really clear individual units that she stacks together. And of course, something about the mixing of this particular recording is also giving it that quality. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't thought about the music constructed that way. And I'm curious if you all had a similar sense of that kind of transparent or architectural nature of this work. I would definitely agree. I love that you kind of found that quote, that pull quote to, to add to this conversation about it being a mosaic, like that, mm-hmm. that definitely describes so much of her music. And then also this one in particular, you just you get these, like you said, these units of information that stitch together to make the whole. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for me, when you mentioned that to me earlier, the first thought that I had was about that Turtle Dreams track that's 30 minutes long. Mm -hmm. It has the same sort of ostinato beneath. And it has something that's, I'm misusing this term, but if, the best sounding term is like developing variation of little mm. cells, mm -hmm. or each one kind of is a filter that stacks to view the next one. Mm. And each one you kind of hear in parallel with all the other ones that you've heard. And there's this experience that builds up over time of doing different things in these sort of larger formal units of like eight bar phrases or 16 bar phrases or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of repetition with like subtle variation and then repetition with really wild variation. And it just makes it really delightful to have the repetition because it allows us to compare and to remember. And there's this layering and it, it definitely works with memory. So like the, the title memory games makes so much sense to me in this sort of comparison of units over time and architectural way of thinking about it. Mm, interesting. Well, I have a question for both of you. I definitely have some thoughts about this, but I was wondering if anything struck you particularly about the use of the voices and the use of the instruments. If you had any particular feelings, I guess, about the vocal lines versus the instrumental lines. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Just wondering, because they are new arrangements, right? I think that the instrumental lines for me generally contribute to a feeling of groove, which I think is so important for music generally, but that I think helps to sort of make this experience of going through this sort of cycling groove track really helps us to like compare the different sections and embody them and have a good time. And there's so much about the groove that is both like a template for the variation in the vocal parts and also just provides a lot of the ethos for the experimental nature of the vocal lines and the vibe that is being communicated, if that makes any sense. Sure, sure. Something that was interesting to me about this, which I didn't really pick up on in my first listening, but it really started to affect me as I listened more was my sense that the instrumental lines actually seemed very square for a lot of it. There was almost something like cool and dispassionate about it. Mm -hmm. They were kind of unemotional for a lot of the time. Now towards the end, there is a real buildup. As I put it in my notes, it's like a funky breakdown. <laughs> starts, like a little after seven minutes. But for much of the early section of the piece, there's this kind of unemotional part to the instrumental playing. But then it's joined by the voices that are so expressive, even in like the simplest gestures. And I thought it was so cool to hear the individual voices, like even when they're in unison, they have so much individuality, mm -hmm. which is, I don't know, just so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what else yeah. to say. But I, I was really moved by this at first, maybe seemingly disconnect between the level of emotion between the voices and the instruments, but how those kind of wove together and added to each other mm -hmm. over time. There's a real buildup in this piece that is really exciting. And then maybe around eight or so minutes, in my own notes, I marked it as joyful yulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything just becomes this giant celebration. And um, it's just really convincing. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I love what you said about that being somewhat somewhat dispassionate in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a like a derogatory way of explaining oh, it. Oh, no. no. And one of the things that I felt in hearing you say that 
kind of put the puzzle pieces together for me. And I might have been a little influenced by seeing, you know, memory games and the word memory. Mm -hmm. I think you'll hear this also mirrored in the final tracks that we're talking about in our time together today. But this idea of the immediacy of the voice and the really Mm -hmm. characterful quality of individual voices and somewhat dispassionate instrumental playing along with that starts to give this glossy memory feeling to me, an ethereal mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. where we kind of, it's a little bit of floating in and out of a real space. You know, I'm, a, I'm allowed to kind of transcend those spaces because of how that juxtaposition of sounds is put together. And sure. I think you can tell I really like that quality, apparently, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so got it okay like, uh, so, <laughs> like immediate voices dispassionate instrumentals and branded for camp we got it i'm down <laughs> composers if you're listening you want to write a piece for megan enan yes <laughs> oh that's amazing yeah no i i really meant that in like a uh, the dispassionate comment as an intentional choice you know yeah, exactly the instruments and the voices are playing their own really unique roles. Mm -hmm. And it makes it that much more exciting when the instrumental portion of the piece really begins to develop towards the end of the piece, because it's like there's been this tension all this time and suddenly they're able to like release and really play out. Um, So I think it's really, really exciting. And as it gets towards the end, there's just this sense this joy and this sense of community, I think, among the voices as they mm-hmm. become like more abstract and, oh man, it's really moving. And then close to the end when Theo Bleckman comes in with that solo after mm-hmm. this huge buildup, it's like a total shock and such an amazing moment. I love that movement. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I say. I'm just going to like sound like a goober today in this episode. <laughs> I just love them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think I think we're all big fans of this music, and I will echo Dan and say that if you ever have the opportunity to see Meredith Monk and her ensemble live, to watch videos of them, to just get more familiar with her work and her philosophy, both as an artist and as a person, she has so much to offer and is so, so inspiring. So I thank you guys for talking about this music. <laughs> it's just such a joy. Yeah. Oh, it's been awesome for me as well. I had having less immediate familiarity with Meredith Monk and having heard so many wonderful things about her, getting a chance to spend time and do my homework and learn more about what she's doing has been really rewarding. Yeah. Just before we wrap this up, I just want to mention one other track on this album. The track is actually called Memory Song. Mm-hmm. This is a song that I have heard and seen Meredith Monk perform live in a different arrangement, obviously not with bang on a can all-stars like on this album but that particular track is always so moving to me and it's just one that I really recommend to anyone who's not as familiar with her work and also as Megan mentioned happy woman mm-hmm. it's just really an incredible one kind of different parts of the emotional spectrum I think mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. just so much to offer so some recommendations for further listening yeah exactly <laughs> Emlyn, can you talk about why Memory Song, musically, what's compelling to you in that? There are a few things about it. Part of it is the language that's used. Mm -hmm. 
Throughout it, what this particular piece kind of says to me is something about an idea of memory. Obviously, that's in the title. Mm -hmm. And throughout the whole track, there are mentions of things like, I remember birds, or I remember trees, or the feeling of champagne, or kind of these um, really vivid but simple images that kind of play back and forth with this idea of remembering and forgetting mm-hmm. and something about it is so tender and empathetic to the human experience and and aging i think it really speaks to yeah. aging at least for you know my perspective and it's that one's just always really really moving to me yeah and memory plays a big part in a lot of my music making and a lot mm. of how I put together shows and what I think about when I'm creating performances. And so I really identify with what you were saying in that. And I think she starts the piece with fergessa, right? The word forget German. Mm-hmm. Yes. And fergessa is just such a delicious word to like speak and sing. Mm-hmm. It's, yes. <laughs> and you're like, yes, for some reason, like just the saying of that gives you so much to play with that feels the same for some reason. I love that also like singing the word delicious. Sorry, there's just like get to some I really love when composers write you words then like give you the way to vocalize it that also underlines like the text painting but like on a whole different level. So I really love that. Oh, yeah. And but I really love what you're saying about about memory song in that way and identify with that because I think that remembering and memory and like who is the keeper of our memories is such a strong Mm. quality in the work that I make and how we hold those things. And memory in music is so important. And the way that particularly that we get to make music, even if it's in documentation or if it's in notated work, is that we're passing down these qualities of memories in the making of it, in the doing of it. And that's, Mm -hmm. I just love that. And it's one of the things that I come back to time and time again as a music maker, which is a hint of a whisper and a dream at the oral tradition and how we <laughs> and how we pass along some of our deepest feelings to people that we may not get to see or meet and we get to do that through music and i think that that's so powerful and so i think also a memory mm-hmm. song definitely does that for me yeah well thank you for sharing that megan i think that that's actually kind of a perfect segue into our last selection for today oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Unplanned, but perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Megan, I know that we've had a a kind of collaborative experience with all the tracks today with just, you know, things that were kind of on all of our playlists, actually. But what is the specific work that you brought for us today? So I brought Sandy D by Natalie Joachim, who is a composer, flutist, vocalist. She's a Haitian-American and well-known for her work with Eighth Blackbird and Flutronics and as herself as a solo performer and composer. And this entire album was created with Spectral Quartet, features vocals, flute, electronics, all of that. And it came out of a Liquid Music Series commission, I believe, Kate Nordstrom, like I think somewhere around 2017, 2016, 2017 was probably when this came about and was also nominated for a Grammy in the world music category, this most recent Grammy cycle. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to review 
this album for I Care If You Listen. And it has stuck with me ever since. I just remember enjoying it and just being so satisfied, so fulfilled by like the entire listening experience for this, that when mm-hmm. when you asked me, you know, what, what track do you want to talk about? And I was like, it's got to be from this because it's something that hasn't let me go since I heard it. And that's the kind of music I want to talk about. <laughs> it's just the best. It's an amazing yeah. album. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I have uh, been reduced to a tender puddle of tears a couple times yeah. this week listening to this record. <laughs> Especially as I've learned more about the context that it was sort of conceived. I've been doing a lot of mopping around the house. (laughs) Hey, I do some too. Mopping the tears. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) That sounds like a John Dowland song or something. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Sorry, Dan, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's uh, totally fine. I've also really enjoyed, we'll probably put up some YouTube links of live performances that just really drive home the intense personal commitment that Natalie has to the the music that she's presenting. It's just this beautiful presentation of something felt so deeply in the heart. And the more that I've learned about the context for the album and how it was written and the message that she's trying to communicate is just such a warm, loving, and hopeful message. I think that the whole album just sort of like fills me yeah. with hope. And I think that that's the real underlying feeling that she's communicating to everyone. Definitely. What One of the things that I love so much about all three of these tracks that we're talking about today is just really interesting musical ideas, but that also are just wrapped up in like joyful music making. <laughs> like, Mm -hmm. we're all just like yeah isn't it great when we make music yeah (laughs) (laughs) and like isn't it great when we tell stories through music isn't it great when we you know just connect through this and really feel like this idea that you mentioned early Dan in in our talk together today which is kind of like building up peaks all that kind of stuff is very present in all of these works and just talking about how that really we're all drawn to that, you know, as people that like music, we mm-hmm. love feeling that build up and to the release and all of that goodness, you know, and I think each one of these tracks does that. And particularly this album, the way that Natalie crafted this entire suite, it almost like it snuck me hard when I was listening to it for the, like, the first time <laughs> mm-hmm. where I was like, yeah, this is great. This is great. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm like kind of taking my notes, you know, I'm like listening through and I got to the final track. And that's when we were initially talking about it. The final track is also entitled Thandi And that was the track that I was suggesting for this. And then we kind of decided like, let's talk about the whole thing. Yeah, because it's the entire album leading up to that moment. And Dan, like you, yeah, there was definitely some tears happening. I was just like, Ooh, wow. Okay. That, like, I have feelings about this. Yeah. <laughs> Very fair. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> I I have been so impressed listening to this. It's, it's hard to describe any one track mm-hmm. 
for me because it feels like this big hole and like W-H-O-L-E, it feels like a big hole. Um, And it feels like one big journey from the beginning to the end. I think it's very smartly crafted in terms of the ebb and flow of these kind of peaks and valleys and kind of the emotional arc that's really anchored by these interviews with these different women who have some role in music in Mm -hmm. Haiti. And I think all of the music that we've talked about today, yes, is about this joyful music making and is about identity. And this one really strikes me as just so personal. Mm -hmm. It's so personal that there's something about this album that's like extremely generous, you know, like what a gift to share this unique individual story that also speaks to like humanity story, you know? And I think that's something that many, many musicians strive for, many artists strive for, is to kind of take a personal story, right? And use it as a microcosm of a more universal experience. And this is such a successful example of that. I was familiar with uh, her work as a flutist through Eighth Blackbird and Flutronics as being a fellow mm-hmm. flutist. But this was my first introduction to Natalie as a vocalist and a composer and using electronics and all the other a million skills right, that she right. has. <laughs> and her voice is also just so powerful. And I think both a gift to us and a gift to those whose words she is sharing also. Definitely. There was something about this, and I think we also kind of touched on this with Meredith Monk about letting a work of art like this take time to get to this place, Mm -hmm. you know, that Mm -hmm. coming to producing something like this in your artistic path, where, where Natalie is now, that I don't know if we totally have access to when we're younger, because it's, it's Mm. the accumulation of stories, it's the accumulation of experiences that we have in life, and then being able to listen to that understand it, have perspective on it, then be able to shape it into something that you're able to share with other people. That, Like you mentioned, Emlyn, there's a generosity in being able to take something so personal and be able to craft it in a way that it's for other people's consumption. And can you think about how many things in our lives uh, we have not fully processed in a way that it's available to give to others in that way? And I think- There's something in the way that she let this project come about in her own life and maybe some patience with it that is very motivating and like supportive that I find in something of that quality, something that says, you know, it's okay to let something big take time and Mm. sit with something. And I think that composers, performers, we want, we want access to those very early in our careers. Like we want to be able to like, you know, really... Yeah. write like heart-wrenching things and uh you know all that stuff and like really explain the human experience before we've had a lot of human experience and um <laughs> and there's something to be said for allowing life experience to inform the music that you're making and let that take time and be okay with that that I really resonate with in this particular project I think that is just so true. I mean, I think about even my own ideas for projects and my own desire to have certain things done at certain times. And something that was inspiring in this like random Facebook live interview I saw with Meredith Monk. (laughs) (laughs) So 
But something that she talked about, she talked about the fact that something that she sees as a strength of hers is that she really listens. She listens to what the work mm. needs and she takes her time to, to listen yeah. and not force something into existence because of ego or because of a, you know, just some other certain external idea, but to just allow the work to develop. Yeah as it should and using that patience taking taking that time i think that's a very inspiring message to all of us maybe especially to like our type a yeah. colleagues but really <laughs> to all of us i think that really resonates resonates with me well there's something about listening and taking time that i think is part of what makes the message for this album so Bingo. powerful yeah. mm-hmm. you know it's filled with quotes from female luminaries from the Haitian music scene, people that Natalie has looked up to for years, people in her family. She talks about her grandma. And I love that there are voices of these other amazing, strong people that are some of them close to 100 years old talking about their experiences and that this is what's being celebrated. I was doing a lot of back reading for this because as I was listening to the music, I thought, wow, this is beautiful, like this wonderful, magical world of music. I have to know more about what she's singing and what this music is about and where it's coming from, because it seemed like it was coming from a very like deep, personal mm-hmm. place. And I did some reading, read some reviews, including yours, Megan. <laughs> I-, I loved reading your review of this album. <laughs> But I also listened to a a podcast where Natalie said some really interesting stuff. And I'm just going to paraphrase here, but Natalie said that so many people left Haiti because being educated and trying to use your voice to educate others became an issue of safety. She was talking about Emirant, who was an icon of Haitian music. And she interviewed Emirant when she was about 98 years old, shortly before she passed away. But Emirant was a dancer in the US and went back to Haiti because she thought it was a duty to take what she had learned and return to Haiti. And Natalie says that that's why her parents went back to Haiti. And she says that's why she wants to go back to Haiti. And I think that this project is a part of wanting to give back and to look at people that she has admired for a long period of time and to participate in this culture that she's grown up with. That's such a deep part of her and to celebrate the work of many other people And to kind of dive into something really close to her heart, which I think was just really inspiring to me. Yeah, and I love what you said about about the act of listening being such an important part of this album. And I think it reminds me each time that although we work in new music and we're we're really devoted to new sounds, new ideas for contemporary musicians and listeners and things like that, we're always part of a very long tradition, lots of different long traditions. And the ways that we let those influence us and the ways that we transform those are part of the new ideas. And being able to reflect on that and having a very long scope. So it's not just music that's happened since the 1900s or something like that, but music going farther back and thinking about that, right? So going back to my Brandenburg Jam, right? It, it makes it more interesting <laughs> when we have context for, you know, how, how does a Brandenburg Jam show up in this? And why is it important? You know, and, and, mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. and I love, love knowing when we're not just so focused on the decades right around us to say, oh, of course, this is like, look at this, the incredibly new idea, right? But really thinking about <laughs> where am I in this in this long running river that I'm stepping into for a moment in time 
and like adding to that river with the sounds that I'm creating now and stepping out at some point, you know, that's part of it. Like we all step into this incredibly long running river of music and say, I have something to add to this. That's also part of all Mm -hmm. of the music that's come before me. That's really well said, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) It's inspiring. It's really inspiring to think about. And on a recent podcast, we had a conversation about context that kind of went a different way. Our question was really about how much context do you Mm -hmm. need? (laughs) I think there was a recent New York Times article or op-ed that Dan shared with me that was about like, do you really need to know Mm -hmm. about the music to enjoy it? And I can't speak for both. I shouldn't speak for both Dan and me, but I think I can speak for us enough to say like context is really important to us Mm -hmm. and sounds like it is to you as well. And I think it just... I mean, especially with an album like this that has a true story and a real deep inspiration, that context is is extremely important. Emlyn, I really love what you said about how important is context and thinking about it both through the music maker and the listener lens. You know, as a reviewer, I try to show up to music fresh and listening mm-hmm. to just that, right? And that's that's really important to me. And maybe not being too steeped in context when I'm taking things in. Interesting. But as a music maker, I definitely want, I'm trying to infuse that side with a ton of context because I think that that makes it a very Mm -hmm. rich experience. And so for anybody who does really want all of those little Easter eggs of context in a piece, I've also thought about it from that side. And I said, look, look at all the stuff I built into this. Like, look at all of that. Mm -hmm. I agree with what you're saying and the, and the article in this point, which is, I think that it can be a both and situation. You know, I think that we yeah. can always show mm-hmm. up to music saying like, this is brand new to me and I have no context for it whatsoever. I've definitely heard that <laughs> on a bunch of music festivals. <laughs> like, so like, where I'm like, whoa, okay, what? <laughs> like, what is happening here? Um, but I think that that definitely leads me as, as a reviewer to thinking about all of that stuff and, and saying like, okay, you know, what am I taking in? That's, that's just this piece. And then also there's never a situation in which we're going to be devoid of context because we're humans. We've lived all this time building up life experience. So I think the reason that it's important to me to approach things fresh when I'm reviewing is to hopefully be more aware of the context that I'm bringing individually. Mm, Sure. I love that point that you were just making about the double edge of needing to come in with fresh ears and try to listen to something for what it really is. And also being aware of the context that you also are bringing into it. My cello teacher of many years was known to say that the way that you play is a history of everything that's gone on in your brain. And I think that's true for listening also. And it's really easy to forget that, like the way that we listen to music is a history of all of the music that we've ever Mm -hmm. heard, the things that we're expecting to hear, the things that we're not expecting to hear, or even what anything means is totally dependent on everything that you've listened to Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And I love this particular album because it reaches back to things that she heard when she was growing up, things that are like a really core part of her Mm -hmm. life and her identity, some things that she may even have felt like that she in some ways lost touch with over time. It's unclear to me to what extent that is true. But I mean, for me, like, you know, thinking about reaching back into my past and like what 
the sources might be for some of my core values. I can imagine that that to acknowledge that life context yeah. is just a really powerful experience. And I think that that's a part of the source for the joy and the generosity and the effectiveness of this yeah. album. It just, it comes like a, like a gut punch of mm-hmm. beauty and joy and truth, because I think that she's really getting in touch with this thing for her and that we all want to be in touch with yeah. also. Yep. That Mr. Harris, that's a nice quote, Dan. I think about yeah. it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Dan, you just really, really gifted me this thought right now about as a teacher and the ways that I approach kind of, quote unquote, decolonizing the voice studio or something like that, which is why I never wanted to make my voice students feel bad about wanting to study, like work on pop songs or work on whatever, you know, work on any other sort of influence. And we kind of talked about this with Emma's piece too, which is I don't want them to think that there's only one sound that's the right sound or something like that. But I wanted them to know that there are healthy ways for them to make sound with their bodies. And I'm going to teach them that and they can apply mm-hmm. that however they want to in their lives. That was really important to me as a, as a voice teacher. And I think that some of the takeaways that I'm having from our talk about these three tracks is about both the music making side of it, the, the vocalism side of it, as well as the compositional side of it, which is here are some building blocks, here are some resources, here are some tools for how to make the sounds you want to make. And that's really an important aspect of how we honor all voices in our music making experience and decolonizing the composition studio, so to speak, right? So that we're not only prioritizing certain ways of making sounds. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's coming through in some of this conversation is like, wow, all of these people have really identified the tools that allow them to make the sounds they want to make. And I think that that's an, an important aspect of our conversation today. Definitely. Well, I am so grateful for all the music that we've been listening to today. And particularly with this last selection, I would really encourage any of our listeners who aren't familiar with this album to really listen to the whole album. Sure, pick out tracks, (laughs) but it's really a journey, I think, and very cohesive and um, an amazing experience. And the more you learn about where she's coming from and what she's trying to communicate in terms of where the songs come from and who the people are that are interviewed on the album. I think it just really deepens the meaning and the experience of what's already totally joyful and beautiful totally. music. And I think Spectral yeah. plays gorgeously on this, like plays beautifully. Oh, oh yeah. well, also true. Good yeah. point. <laughs> and like, here's, um, there's like kind of going back to what we were talking about with the instrumental and the vocal part. It, it That's, that's where that showed up a lot for me. And this one was hearing, hearing the way that spectral is is employed throughout this album and then whether that's in conflict in coalition with the vocal line and the way Mm -hmm. that that's used is really something to focus on when you're listening is not only what are all of the sounds like what are the stories what are all of that from the vocal perspective but also how how is the voice and the and the instruments how are they working together and confirming or denying what's going on And that's, oh man, so gorgeous. Such gorgeous playing. (laughs) Yes, really gorgeous. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for sharing this beautiful album with us. And thank you for being here with us and bringing so much to this conversation. Thank you. Emily and Dan, this has been really, really, really wonderful. And I 
I just needed this conversation with both of you. So thank you for taking this time. (laughs) It's a time when we all need more connection, right? So we just want to talk about things that fill us up musically, you know, things that make us feel, Mm -hmm. feel hopeful, feel joyful, like we've talked about a lot. And so I really appreciate you being open and providing this space. I think that getting to talk about really excellent music making and what it means to us is also really important. I hope that people that are listening, feel free to continue those conversations, maybe continue it with us. I'm sure that both of you are open to having those conversations as I am with anybody who listens and wants to say, Oh, I felt this (laughs) way about that track. And I felt this way, you know, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah. yeah. We need more of that for Mm -hmm. sure. And thank you again a thousand times for encouraging us to actually do this podcast. Well, I'm, um, I'm so yes. happy. <laughs> I just think, you know, everybody, if you have an idea, like, I just want you to know that it's about just like starting and exactly what you did, which was gathering information, just saying like, okay, I'm sure people that I'm friends with, like have some, have some thoughts that might help me on this. And and moving forward and look where we are right now and look at this amazing platform yeah. that you're offering people to have the, these conversations together. It's been really meaningful to me just to connect with people. You know, we were thinking about doing this before the world yeah. ended and the world will come <laughs> back. It's been really meaningful to me just to get a chance to connect with people and to push me to really deeply listen to music that some of which I'd never even heard of mm-hmm. before. And that's something that I would not normally do. I mean, life is busy. You run around, you bump into stuff, you know, like things get busy and frustrating or whatever. And it it can be hard to connect with people and it can be hard to do the work to actually listen to something and listen to it 10 times and think about what does this mean to me? What are they really trying to say? What do I like about this? And I, I just feel like I'm a my musicianship is expanding every time that I do one of these episodes yeah. and my heart is more filled with love and connection for other people. And it's just been really fun. So thank you again, just for yeah being a part of helping us to figure out how to get it started. Well, I really love what you're doing. And if I can say for a second that when you're doing these listening episodes and you're engaging in deep listening, you know, you have to be quiet with yourself. And so you're definitely coming into contact with what does this music mean to me? And all of that. And then Personally, just Emlyn and Dan, both of you, thank you for not only talking about musical subjects, musical topics that are happening in this, but also you're allowing listeners to have this to have this insight into some very vulnerable places in ourselves that we that we access when we're listening to music and deeply engaging with art. And that's bigger than we think it is sometimes. So I, I want to encourage you both to keep doing that because because there's so much of us talking to each other and, and needing to like, look important, but not really talking about the places that are scary, or the places that are hard, or, you know, things like that, in the listening and in the music making that we do. So I just want to say, like, thank you so much for providing a place like that. And please don't stop. (laughs) Because we we can talk about, you know, we can talk about form, we can talk about the theory, and we should, but we should also connect that to to the ways that it makes us better humans to do that deep listening. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Well, in that spirit, Megan, I know that we are still living in this strange time, (laughs) but we're curious to hear if there's anything that you have on the horizon, a performance or project of yours or or something else that you're really excited about. 
what's happening with yeah. you? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, you know, so live performances are in flux at the moment until, you know, we're able to do that again. Once we're able to do that, I know that Megan Enan and Alan Tyson present my voice and saxophone duo will be ready to launch our second touring show, Black Meridian. And I cannot wait to share that experience with, with listeners. And so I'm just infusing that entire project with more thought and care and attention until it's, until it's able to kind of hit the road. But I do have, well, a couple of albums, but I have the Sleep Songs album, the first of three is in its kind of like mixing, mastering final stages. So I did this Kickstarter a few years ago and commissioned, I think it's something like 26 composers. So, (laughs) you know, like, but (laughs) so the, the first album is almost ready to come out. It's all wordless lullabies for solo voice and any instrument that I could play in my current state of playing it right so <laughs> sure so sure. um i'm really excited about this and hoping to you know share it widely i hope that people will kind of keep an eye out for it obviously they can find me on social media at mezzo enan i h n e n and on my website meganenan.com so my first name is m e g a n my last name is i h n e n and i yeah i hope that they you know, they just keep an eye out for it around the way when it's ready to go. That's really exciting. We will keep an eye Yay. out for it. Too. <laughs> yeah, we certainly will. And you said it's the first of three. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's very yeah, exciting. I, I had some stress it. about this. I really thought that this project was going to happen much quicker in my life than it did. Kind of going back to things that take time. And I, yeah, I have been very humbled in <laughs> the that project. And I'm I'm hoping that the learning that I've done and like the kind of um, welcoming of patience that I've done on that will definitely pay off in these projects as they come to life, that they really got the attention and care that they deserved when it comes to, to the recording of them and putting them out in the world. So I'm really grateful to all of the composers who wrote for me and the people who donated to that Kickstarter. And I'm just really thrilled that I get to start sharing some of the outcomes of that project. That's very exciting. Well, we are so grateful to you for being here. We are huge fans of yours, not only as a performer, but you know, for everything that you do in the new music community and beyond. You're such a an advocate and a beacon of light. And we're just grateful to take this time. So thank you. We'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah. Yes, we're gonna do a big party. We'll do a big listening party. That sounds yes. so, fun. <laughs> so thank you both. I really, really appreciate what you're doing here. So I really, I know that we'll stay in touch and, and then hopefully we'll get to do this again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks for joining us for our sixth episode of the New Music Listening Club. If you want to find our club listening list for today's episode, look for Listening List 6 on Facebook at New Music Listening Club, on Twitter at Listening New, or on our website at newmusiclisteningclub.com. After listening, we'd love to hear from you by comment or tweet to join the discussion of this episode's list and to let us know what other music we should be listening to for next time. Thanks so much to Nicole Murphy for composing our theme music. You can find her at nicolemurphy.com.au. Thanks and happy listening. <laughs>